Amen. Well, if you have a seat, you'll need to open your Bibles to actually Deuteronomy chapter 6, as we're going to start right away. And this is basically an introduction to Habakkuk, which introductions are the kind of things that you typically probably skip in books and go right to chapter 1. But I think it's really important to make sure we give some context, and we'll talk about that. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, because I have a lot to go over, so... If you have a pen, you're going to want to keep track of where I go, but see if you can keep up. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, says this. Moses speaking, actually, I'm sorry, God speaking through Moses. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So we're starting a five-week series. It's only a three-chapter book on the book of Habakkuk, and that is a real book in the Bible. You may have heard of it. You may have not. Um, It's probably not the first book that you would turn to when you're doing your devotions, and it's probably the first book that you might skip. Um, And most of us would probably be pretty hard-pressed to even find it in the Bible, um, squished between the ever-popular and regularly preached books of Nahum and Zephaniah. So I don't think you'll maybe be able to find it. It's the 35th book of 39 in the Old Testament. So don't start in Genesis. Start in Micah and go back, um, and you'll you'll be okay. But there are obviously a lot of books to choose from, 66 books to choose from, uh, in the Bible that we could preach, 39 in the Old and, and 27, and they're written by 40 different authors with all kinds of backgrounds, some peasants, some kings, uh, some professional fishermen. Uh, there's all kinds of different kinds of writings in the Bible. There are poetry, there's history, there are uh, just letters to churches, letters to young pastors that will hit coming soon. But the truth is that I chose Habakkuk, uh, and I should say we, because the elders discuss what we're going to preach, because I love its rawness. It's one of those real, raw, short, genuine books that you kind of read and you think, yeah, I think like that. That sounds like me. And the difference between this, this book, and in the beginning of this book, I go through and I explain a lot about the prophets. And I'm not going to talk about today, but I encourage you to read that, about the role of the prophet, and specifically the, the, the minor prophet uh, role. It's not really a role, it's just it's called minor because it's a smaller book. But there's a series of minor prophets, and this is probably one of the most important books of those minor prophets that has been incredibly influential. And it's unique in that it doesn't focus as much on the prophecy or the proclamation of of God's judgment or God's promise, whatever it might be. It focuses on this conversation between a guy named Habakkuk and God. And even more than just the conversation, it's Habakkuk complaining to God and getting a little upset as we probably should, and we'll talk about that next week. But he looks around his world, this world of chaos, this world that's just 
evil, this world where he sees good people suffering and bad people prospering, and he's like, where are you, God? What are you doing? And it's a question that I think all of us ask. And Habakkuk starts with this complaint, and the book ends with a song of him singing of faith. And I don't know if we all end up there. I hope we do. Some of us stay in chapter 1, complaining. And the passage in Deuteronomy 6 might seem like a weird place to start when we're talking about Habakkuk. But in that passage in Deuteronomy, right before that, Moses is basically reteaching Israel, because many of the generation that received the Ten Commandments initially had died. And he's reteaching them the Ten Commandments, and then he he kind of proceeds to explain to them how they are the way to life. And he also adds in this part of it that they must be passed on to the next generation, that they must be taught. And Moses assumes that the kids are going to ask, why are we doing all this, Dad? Why do we do all this stuff? And Moses points them and charges the Israelites to teach them history, to teach them the reason why they do these things. And this passage, I think, represents really where I hope to go just in this introduction of giving us some, some history about how we find or what we find in Habakkuk. And the truth is, uh, without history, our faith makes actually little sense. And our faith, Christianity, is sourced in the history of the gospel, which is an act in history. That something happened a couple thousand years ago on a hill with a man on a cross. And a lot of Christians, and just people in general, will often say that you know, history is not that important. It's what's you know, going on now. And, and our culture has kind of perpetuated this mentality. And if that's the mentality we take over faith, then what's going to happen is this, and it's hard to maybe think about it this way, but if we don't value history of what happened, in particular on that cross, in space and time, what happened there? we will invariably end up focusing on our work today instead of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That will happen. And so it matters if Jesus really existed. It matters if he really lived a life that we can follow as an example. It matters if Jesus really died. It matters if Jesus really rose from the dead. And it matters if he ascended to heaven. It's not just a matter of, well, those are nice, mythical, good ideas. Those are actual things that happen. And it's interesting that when Jesus himself had risen from the dead and was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, in order to explain to them the meaning of the cross, he gave them a history lesson and went back and said, let me tell you why this all makes sense. It must have been one heck of a history lesson. But history gives us, I think, the correct context And the context of yesterday ensures that we don't make mistakes, or at least ensures that we have some correct understanding for what's going on today. And our approach to Scripture, and let's be honest, is generally when we open up a book like Habakkuk, if you ever get there, or James or anything, it's often led by 
the question of, what does this mean for me today? And I think that's an awesome question, but it shouldn't be the first question that we ask. I think it's actually kind of dangerous to ask that question first, because if we do, we'll end up, I think, knowing us, twisting the scriptures a little bit so they meet our understanding of our lives and what we think they should be, and maybe miss the point of what actually it meant to that first audience it was originally written to. It would, if we just begin in, with Habakkuk and take it out of the larger story of Scripture, or James, or anything, it's like coming in at chapter 12 of a novel. Okay? You open up the book, you start reading to chapter 12, of which, as an English teacher, I had a lot of kids try, and you would go in, and you'd read it, and you'd say, well, tell me what happened before that. And they would guess, they can kind of assume... They maybe figured out a little bit and get a little bit of understanding, but they didn't know the whole story, and therefore chapter 12 didn't even make much sense. Made some sense within chapter 12. They could still get something from it, but in terms of the whole story, meaningless. Bear with me. It's kind of like Lost. (laughs) Now, if you're not a Lost fan, you will actually understand this very well, because you may know somebody who is a Lost fan. But I'm a Lost fan. Love Lost. I think it's... An amazing show. Could be the best show ever made. I'm not sure yet. We'll find out. And there are many people that watch the show, but there are fewer and fewer people that watch the show as the series has gone on. And they produced these DVDs for the previous seasons because people wanted to catch up. Because if you start watching right now, right? If you come in at Season 6, Episode 7, which is what is coming up, okay? If you come in now, you will watch the show and you will go... So they landed on an island, right? I've had these conversations like, and all I do is shake my head and go, you don't get it. And there are people that you start identifying each other like, yeah, I'm a season three. I'm I'm season four. You know, like you can't even say things. But then you realize, like, even if I did say something, it would not make any sense to you. So whatever. It doesn't matter. But that's similar to what if we take Habakkuk out of the larger story of Scripture That's what will happen. We'll come in at episode 6 and go, I get something here. I kind of like that story. That's interesting. But we will actually make incorrect judgments about where things have been, where things are going, and it will be a wrong perception of what's happening. And I think Habakkuk is the same exact way. And so in order to understand what's going on, we have to first talk about historical setting, about the circumstances, about the author of which we really don't know much about, about what he's trying to do before we actually talk about what this means for us today. And if Habakkuk is just one chapter in a larger story, it is. The Bible tells the story of God, and Habakkuk is just one chapter in that story. Then what that same God did, that same author did before Habakkuk, will inform what he does in Habakkuk, which will inform and help us to understand what the Snarfy's doing today. Because we're going to sound very similar to Habakkuk, and if we don't know who this God is that we worship and who he's been, we will have wrong judgments about God and wrong judgments about our lives in making decisions and assessing how things are going. But what we see is this as the overarching story that Habakkuk is part of, is that the story is about one thing. One thing. The glory 
of God. That's what the whole story is about. And people don't like that because it's this ambiguous idea. But the whole story is about making much of God. This God who does things in order to accomplish that that are radical and crazy and unbelievable and unpredictable. Nothing is impossible type of things. Always demonstrating that He is the one calling the shots. He is the one in control so that men can never say, we're pretty great. That's His whole point. And in doing that, He loves us and He saves us and He punishes sin and He's just and good and it's awesome. But make no mistake about it. This thing we call life is not about your comfort or mine. It's about the glory of God, which is and where we find true joy. But I don't think that we would necessarily do it his way. So, in 35 minutes or less, I'm going to give you 35 chapters of the Bible, actually 35 books, as we give you context to Habakkuk. You ready? I'm going to fly. I'm going to go so stinking fast. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. Creation. Oh yeah, Genesis 1. Okay? The story begins with a perfect God who creates, and he does this in six days, creating everything visible and invisible, and he speaks it, which is important, I think, speaks it into existence from nothing. He does not create because he has to. He does not create because he's obligated to or because he needs something. He is love, and he creates in many ways out of very expression of his nature. So in other words, he wasn't lonely. And he needed friends or worshipers. He was perfect in himself. Now, he doesn't just create a world. He creates a world that is beautiful and that in his own words, which I think he's a pretty good assessor of all things because he's seen everything, it's good. And then he creates man and woman, and after he does, he's like, whoa, this is very, very good. And then man is given a job to build and to cultivate and to protect and to bring order to chaos, to the glory of God, and he gives him a bride, and the bride is supposed to help him and support that work as she brings beauty to the order that he creates. That's my interpretation, but I think it's pretty darn good if you look at my home. Now, chapter 3, we read about the villain in the story, who is Satan, and Satan comes and he tempts man, and God's moral law is broken, and men change teams, and they become the villain. If you didn't know, there's one hero in the Bible. It is God. No one else. Everyone else is bad. Okay? That's the story. Had some hope for Adam and Eve, but they joined the villain team. So they're on the League of Justice, or the opposite, the Legion of Doom, I should say. Okay? Now, mankind, the one who was charged with building a God-glorifying culture, decides instead to destroy the culture, the world, and therefore the relationship with God is broken, relationship with themselves are broken, relationship with each other is broken, but all the while, God is in control. This is His story. We never forget that. And as the amazing thing in that garden, unless, unless they eat from the tree of life that is still there in their brokenness, God does something completely unpredictable, yet out of love. He kicks them out of the garden. And from Adam and Eve's perspective, we're like, what are you doing? That's not loving. 
But he does not want them to remain in the garden, in their brokenness, eating the tree of life. And he has a plan, and he gives them hope. A Savior will come, and he pushes them into the darkness. And from there we see Adam and Eve produce sinful kids, leading to more sinful people, and finally the world full of sinful culture. Now, completely disgusted, God chooses a 600-year-old man named Noah, and he says, build a boat, fill it with all the animals, and it's going to rain, and I'm going to wipe everything clean. Of course, it's never rained before at this point. So Noah's like, okay. And so he builds a boat. And through the flood, God wipes the world clean, and only to see sin resurfaced with the one family that he saved, which was Noah's family. And the descendants of Noah, one of his boys, then as you see kind of history unfold throughout the last couple, around Genesis 11 and 12, um, he goes off to build, one of the sons, I should say, goes off to build another city, if you will, dedicated to his own glory and the glory of men called Babel, also known as Babylon. Evil once again reigns, things start to get dark again, and in judgment, God confuses their languages and scatters them about so they won't be one nation that is self-glorifying because he wants it all about his glory. So, what was going to be a nation is now nothing, and God proved himself to be a God of wrath, and which he'd already proved through the flood and other things. But in the midst of chaos, God also proves that he is a God of love, a God of relationship, and he doesn't leave men just wander in the rebellion and say, well, you guys were not doing it right, See you later. Instead, what he does is he selects a man. He chooses a man. He knows that if he doesn't pursue man, if he doesn't go after man, they will never come after him. They will never seek to glorify God. And so he has to pursue them, which obviously the glory is the whole point. And so by grace, he chooses a pagan guy from the same city of which he kind of scattered, named Abraham. And he tells them he's going to make a God-glorifying nation out of him instead. And God promises a son from which this nation will come. Now, this causes his wife to laugh a little bit because they're very old or stricken in years. And they have no kids and they're pretty much sleeping in separate beds. So it's not a really good situation and it's unlikely that this is going to happen. And so Abraham does trust God at that point. However... He thinks God's a little slow about his promise, and so he and his wife concoct an idea, why don't you go ahead and take my servant, and we'll have another kid. And so they decide to have a kid because God hasn't really given the kid that he promised, of which comes, or from which comes, Ishmael and the entire Islamic nation that will eventually come from that line, and that obviously didn't really bode well for any of us. So, eventually, the son of promise is born, though. And his name is Isaac, and he has a son named Jacob, whose name is eventually changed to Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons, of which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of those 12 tribes, there's one guy named Joseph. Now, Joseph has a really hard life. His brothers hate him because his dad loves him. And so he gets thrown into all kinds of terrible things. And throughout his terrible, terrible life, he, God blesses him and controls all the things. He's in prison. He gets falsely accused of rape. He gets accused of all kinds of things, but eventually he rises to power and he saves his family because God is ultimately in control, and Joseph even declares that himself. It's God's story, and ultimately he will be glorified. And so after Joseph, things get really crazy. Okay, So Joseph brings all his family down into Egypt because there's a great famine, 
and they, he is successful because he basically is running Egypt and everything is fine. Well, eventually a new pharaoh rises, they forget who this is, and the exodus comes about. And the story of the exodus is basically a complete demonstration of God's sovereignty and maybe his sense of humor a little bit because he uses an 80-year-old fugitive-turned-shepherd to basically save his people and take them out of Egypt by first speaking to him through a burning shrubbery. So he's got kind of an unusual way of doing things, okay? But he does talk to a guy named Moses. And so Joseph and his brothers, they're now, as I said, enslaved in Egypt and under terrible oppression. They're killing babies, of which Moses actually escaped from, um, and they are being oppressed in incredible ways. They are, in this story, supernaturally saved by God. And it is like a Hollywood disaster film on a cosmic scale. God comes in and he frees his people from slavery and brings them to a huge body of water, as you all probably have heard of, called the Red Sea. And he doesn't part the Red Sea right away. And Moses is standing before the Red Sea. As he looks back, the most powerful military in the world is coming down to kill them all. And, which wasn't the first time, the Israelites start complaining, I wish you would have left us in Egypt. I, we're going to die here. And Moses turns to God and says, Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And God says, Just watch. Just watch me work for you. Watch me save you. We know the rest of the story. Moses leads them through the divided sea to the base of a mountain called Sinai to basically worship. And there he meets his people, God, in what amounts to a wedding. And it's a pattern that God repeats throughout the Old Testament, through Christ, and even to the end times where we will sit in a wedding feast with God, where God is seen as rescuing a people from self. This is the pattern. He rescues a people from self out of this, an impossible situation. And it's always an impossible situation. A situation where men have no hope. And he frees them from bondage. And he brings them to a place of worship that he might reveal his glory to them and ultimately to the world. That's the pattern we see happening over and over again. And at the bottom of this mountain, like a husband giving his vows, God gives his word. And he charges his bride and his people to adhere to their vows that they might live fruitfully and be blessed. And he warns them of the consequences of breaking their vows. Now, fortunately, it didn't take long for Israel to start sleeping with every nation that there was and worshiping other gods. And so in Jewish terms, the book of Numbers is actually called the Rebellion in the Wilderness. And so it records the rebellion of these people as they go around this wilderness for all these years where basically God refuses to let these sinful people who were idolatrous into the promised land and he waits for them to die so that he can raise up a new crew, love them, and send them in. By the end of Deuteronomy, Moses gets to catch a glimpse of the promised land on top of a mountain, and God says, that's what you're not going to be able to go into because of his own disobedience. And he dies there. And his executive assistant turned general, Joshua, leads in conquest into the promised land, one of two guys who didn't die from the previous generation. And he leads in conquest over the promised land, and it tells the story, Joshua does, which we will study in the fall, of this amazing, horrible, scary, terrifying, incredible conquest of this promised land. And we watch as Israel goes out to battle, 
And one of the first things they do is take down the, one of the most powerful cities with basically flutes, uh, flutes, trombones, and their voices. It's like, oh, so this is how God's going to work. And the other battles they go in, there are all kinds of things that happen during the story, but pretty much as they enter battle, God does most of the fighting. And they are conquering the land, and ultimately they take possession of most of the land and fulfill the promises given to Abraham. And like their first parents, they're commanded to build a God-glorifying culture and have God's law and God's presence at the center of their culture. But like their own parents and their first parents, they believe something apart from God is going to make them happier. And so they follow the false gods of the Canaanites who they actually failed to destroy completely as God had commanded them throughout the Promised Land. So then you have the book of Judges. And the book of Judges happens why after Joshua and his generation has pretty much died and they don't have very strong leadership anymore and their failure to do as God commanded now has its consequences. And God actually says it in Judges chapter 2. He says in verse 2 and 3, You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I will not drive them out before you as he had done before. But they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so you see the Israelites continue to rebel and continue to go after false gods of all their neighbors that they never wiped out in the beginning and should have. And the priests, the pastors, if you will, charged with protecting the purity of worship are not heard of in the book of Judges. And the reason is because they're not doing anything. They have failed to lead, failed to protect the purity failed to do all these things. And so it appears that God has given up on His people. It appears that God is silent and He has allowed, as Judges says oftentimes, let men do what is right in their own eyes. And evil just abounds. Whatever they want to do goes. But in the midst of chaos, in the center of the, the failure to wipe out the Canaanites and their threatening, God is faithful. And He, he raises up this motley crew of unlikely heroes called the Judges. And they are amazing people, not because they're righteous, because they're slime balls, most of them. But God uses them. He uses them to glorify Himself. And He demonstrates that even sin is in God's control. Even evil is in God. And be honest, God doesn't have much else to work with. I mean, think about that. We're always like, can't believe you hardened Pharaoh's heart, you know, all these things. All he has is a palette full of brokenness and sin. There's not like a little good paint over here to use. It's all broken. So he has broken tools to use, but it's amazing the way he uses them. And this is what he does here. And in, he does it even to the point where it's so overtly like, okay, I could use these things and be glorified, but I really want to be glorified. So you guys know that I'm the one writing the story. I'm the one in control. I'm the one that's being glorified here. And so one example in Judges 7-2, there's a guy named Gideon, stud muffin, extraordinaire, great story. But as they're about to go into battle, here's what he says in verse 7-2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with, with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. It's like, you've got too many warriors. And if we send you out there, you might be victorious. I'll still be the one creating the victory, but you won't realize how much of an underdog you are and how much you actually need me. So I'm going to actually take some more people away. 
and make it more dependent upon me, at least more overtly obvious dependent upon me. And so in Judges, you see this pattern. The Israelites sin. They worship the false gods. The Lord gets angry because this violates the covenant and the vows that they made. The Lord hands them over to the enemies. He lets the Canaanites have their way with them. The Israelites cry out to God, Where are you, God? You're not doing anything. And he raises up a judge, a deliverer, to rescue them. You see the pattern happen over and over and over again. And it happens over and over again because they're like, Israel is this idolatrous addict that keeps going back. Once they're delivered, hey, things are great. They go sin in. And so the victories of guys like Samson and Gideon are very short-lived. And so eventually, having denied their one true husband and king, Israel basically, by the end of Judges, finds itself pretty devoid of any leadership, of any direction, and ultimately of the presence of God. The same people that started years prior. And so, though the nation deserves judgment, though God has all the right in the world to get angry, He shows them grace again in an unexpected way. And He answers the prayers of a young, barren woman named Hannah. She prays a prayer, she cries out for a child, and Hannah, whose very name means grace, is answered... And she's given a son named Samuel. And Samuel is dedicated to serving God by his mom. And God goes outside the norm because all his priests pretty much suck. And Samuel goes to Eli, who is the priest at the time, goes in and he's adopted into the priesthood to be raised by Eli, who already has two messed up sons. And he raises Samuel, you say God raises Samuel to be a godly priest who faithfully leads and he judges Israel. And in a sense, by answering Hannah's prayer, he answers all the prayer of Israel asking for leadership, asking for protection, asking for a strong leader. And unlike all the priests before him, he faithfully represents God. It's still God's story. He's still in control. But eventually, once again, Israel rebels against Samuel, and instead of God as their king, they want a king from other nations. Instead of a theocracy, they want a monarchy. And Samuel warns them, he says, you guys get a king, there's going to be a problem. But they cry out for a general, ignoring any kind of need for spiritual leadership that they have. And so God grants the request, and even though it's going to bring destruction, he tells Samuel, it's not your fault, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, and Samuel anoints a king, and his name is Saul, the first king of Israel. And he's publicly confirmed as the ruler, the king, the Lord's anointed, the guy that is supposed to, like Adam, represent God, spread God-glorifying rule and culture throughout the world. But also, like Adam, he fails. And in judgment, God rips away the throne and gives it to a young shepherd who can kill lions, bears, and nine-foot men with rocks. And his name was David. And Saul doesn't like that, and we read the story of how that plays itself out. But God does make a covenant with David, and he promises that David, on your throne, a king will come who will rule forever. A true king, a true Messiah, ultimately, Jesus. And it's a time of, of somewhat of prosperity for a little bit, and David rules faithfully for some time until he sins grievously. And he has an adulterous affair 
with a woman named Bathsheba, a wife of one of his soldiers, of which he ends up killing, along with many other men of Israel, to cover up his sin. And when he's called on the carpet by the prophet, in short, he confesses, but because of his decision, violence reigns in his family continually. Murder, rape, incest, betrayal, all these things plague his reign. His own son, Absalom, chases David from the throne. He has to go into hiding. His own son, Absalom, sleeps with his concubines on top of the roof so everyone to see in shame. And eventually, his own son is killed by David's own men. But God still proves that he's even bigger throughout all that than our worst sins as Solomon, the second son of this woman he had the affair with, who he had now married, is made king. And again, we see God working in and through the brokenness and the evil of men to his glory. And Solomon is the most successful and wisest man that ever lived under Jesus. And in his wisdom given by God, he builds a globally recognized culture where everyone shows up to hear his wisdom because it's so amazing. And Solomon wrote thousands of proverbs and he wrote songs and he wrote an amazing love poem in the Bible. He wrote the only book of philosophy called Ecclesiastes in the Bible declaring that all he had, as he, and he had everything, was meaningless and the most important thing was living in the fear of the Lord, but he doesn't follow his own advice. And after he builds the first temple, basically a house for God, he ends up going after foreign women, and ultimately they're gods shortly afterwards. And so, again, it goes into darkness. And when Solomon died, you have... The ten northern, you have twelve tribes. You have the ten northern tribes and then two southern tribes, of which the ten northern tribes refused to submit under the reign of Solomon's son, and they revolted. So from this point on, you've got a divided kingdom, and the north is called Israel, and the south is called Judah. And for over about 250 years, give or take, kings rise and kings fall, and you read about it in Kings. And Chronicles. And some reigned as little as a month. And some reigned for about 50 years. It just depended on what was happening. And some were good and most were bad. And some were really bad. And in the north, Israel was really probably more wicked than Judah. And having been warned by all kinds of prophets like Isaiah, eventually in about 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel that had... the, the nation of Israel, if you will, that had been brought in from Egypt into, through Joshua, to possess the land and to live in this God-glorifying culture is defeated by a nation called Assyria, whose capital was the pagan city of Nineveh, who Jonah had been sent to. And though God had protected Israel before, this time he gave them over. And it says in 2 Kings, the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. 
And at first we go, gosh, I can't believe God did that. Imagine a bride committing adultery over and over and over and over and over and over again. Though you were faithful, she was not. And eventually, God gave them over to the husband, if you will, or the mistress they wanted. And the Assyrians scattered the ten tribes all throughout their own kingdom. And they took up their capital in Samaria, which was the capital of Israel at the time. And they set up their own gods, and they set up false practices, and they set up cultic stuff. And it seemed like Israel had, I mean, that evil had won. But again, it's God's story. And eventually, in the south, Judah also saw good and bad kings. But finally became so corrupt that God allowed it to fall to a nation that had defeated Assyria called Babylon. You probably know or remember the Babylonians, the people that eventually after, uh, uh, after Jerusalem fell took men like Daniel and others into Babylon. And it's during the final years before Jerusalem actually falls that Habakkuk writes. And it is a time of incredible moral corruption, and it's not moral corruption necessarily coming from the outside. It's the moral corruption from within. And he watches in his own nation, this nation that's had all kinds of evil kings, a history of good and bad, mainly bad, a nation that was supposed to be centered on the worship of God, has no types of leadership leading that worship, all kinds of gods, they're worshiping false gods, going after uh, foreign women, and he watches these injustices in his own nations, families being destroyed, justice being perverted, evil winning, all while God seems to do nothing, forgetting the thousands of years where he has done everything. And so he prays. And he prays to God, but his prayer is not typical. He complains. He complains and challenges God about why he doesn't appear to care. Why he doesn't seem to do anything. And then God answers him. And he tells Habakkuk exactly what is going on. And what he's going to do to fix it. And that answer disturbs Habakkuk more than the corruption he saw. Because in essence, what God says is, yeah, I know. And I'm going to raise up these Babylonians, and they're going to come and conquer Judah. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean? You're going to use something that's more evil to conquer this evil? That should be disturbing. And Habakkuk is disturbed. And he responds to God, as we all would, I don't like that plan. God. I mean, come on, how often have you said that? You pray. I wonder what it would be like if God told us his plans. I think it would be terrible. I've, always, I've often wondered, I've got people in my life, I'm like, what is it going to take for them to depend on God? What is it going to take? Your life is so screwed up, why don't you turn to God? 
God, what? can you just tell me? I don't think I'd ever be satisfied with his answer. Because I, I imagine him sometime, here's one that I probably wouldn't be satisfied. Okay, Sam, let me tell you. You're actually going to get brain cancer. Oh. And you're going to suffer terribly. And your family's going to be broken, but you are going to remain faithful to me. And through that experience, I'm going to bring this person to faith. I like that plan. (laughs) That's how God works. I'm so much smaller than God. I don't know so much. I don't know anything compared to God. I am nothing compared to God. I am smaller than a grain of sand compared to God. And yet I want to tell God how to run things? How to best work things out? God responds to Habakkuk and says, Have faith. This is my story. People don't avoid preaching, I think, Habakkuk because it's obscure or it's like strange. I think people avoid reading and preaching this book because it brings us face to face with some very, very hard truths. The key verse to this is Habakkuk 2.4. It's a verse that impacted the Apostle Paul. It impacted the Reformation through Martin Luther. It impacted all of our faith in one way or another. And the second half of the verse, Habakkuk 2.4, says, The righteous shall live by faith. That's his response to Habakkuk. And in short, this book is about faith. It's organized around some very simple and raw conversations with God that we all have in one way or another. Maybe not out loud, but we have them privately for sure. And this book pushes us to a place where we either have to trust that God is sovereign, That God is in control, or He is not. There is no middle ground. That this is His story, that He wrote for His glory, or we can pretend that it's ours, that we would like to write in a way that brings us glory. In short, we are either, we're called to to live and to breathe by the conviction That despite what we see, despite the darkness that you see right now in your life, the chaos, the pain that He may in fact instigate, He is at work for His glory, which is my joy. That's where this takes us to, and no one wants to talk about that. I'll talk about the ten easy steps to have a good life as a Christian But that won't include pain, that won't include evil, that won't include brokenness. But that very well may be how God wrote your chapter. At the heart of Habakkuk, though, at this verse, is the cross. And though it came hundreds of years later, moral corruption and wickedness and injustice still flourished in the same city in Jerusalem when Jesus walked in. And while there were some people that accepted this man from Nazareth as the Son of God, most rejected him as a rebel, 
or a liar or some kind of nut job. And within a few days of walking in, some people calling for him to be king, he was betrayed by one of his best friends. He was publicly ridiculed as a false prophet. He was unjustly accused as a rebel by the authorities. He was beaten. He was broken. He was mocked. And he was ultimately killed, though he was the Son of God. And from all appearances, if any of us had been in there, from what we could see, evil won. Evil won. And I imagine what the disciples sitting there were feeling like, probably similar to Habakkuk, confused, wondering, how could you let this happen? Why are you letting this happen? What, what is going on? This is, not how, this is not how I wrote it. This is not how I saw it ending. How could you let the wicked prosper and win and the righteous Jesus suffer? It's exactly what Habakkuk's asking. But God has, since Genesis, always made beauty from ashes, always made the impossible possible, always taken life from nothing, always worked for His glory. And in three days after their confusing complaint despondent selves, the tomb was empty. And the tomb is still empty, but we like to live on Friday nonstop. We don't live on Sunday, I think, in our lives in terms of the resurrection really happened. The tomb is really empty. Because the tomb and the empty tomb shows us it's God's own proclamation that He is never far off, He is always in control, and evil will never ever, ever, ever triumph. It's an empty tomb. We live on the darkness of Friday complaining. What are you doing? I believe this is how God works. This is who God was. This is God is. This is who God always will be. This is how He works for His own glory. And if we live by sight, this is where we're going with this study. I'm going to push you. And as I'm pushing you, I'm being pushed myself because it's really easy to believe that a pastor walks by faith all the time. He'll newsflash for you. That ain't the case. It's just as much of a struggle for me. But I'm convinced that if we live by sight, that which is dark in our lives right now, you all have darkness in your life somewhere. I know that. We all have some brokenness. We all have some weaknesses, some struggles that maybe have not gone away for years. We have things that appear just foolish. Like, how could this happen this way? This is not how it's supposed to go. Things feel unjust. Things feel evil. If we live by sight in the midst of that, We will be crushed. We will be crushed. We will despair. We will have no hope. But, but, if we walk by faith in the cross, we know that that darkness, that brokenness, that unfair, unjust, 
struggle, weakness, foolish, crazy thing could be one of the very tools God is using to bring us to Him. That's a different way to live. That's Habakkuk. And I'm going to close with this verse declaring, I think, Paul exactly what God is all about. Now, as you think about your own weakness, your own darkness, your own whatever thing you feel like you're insufficient and incapable of doing, think about this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He speaks about our faith. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemptions, so that, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in God. That's what we're about. That's what Habakkuk learns. That despite what we see, despite what we feel, despite what we experience, I will boast in the glory of God, who is bigger than any circumstance I can possibly imagine Because there are some pretty crazy ones in the Bible. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory for your immensity. We stand and I stand in awe, Father, of how big you are and how small I am. And I trust, Father, and I pray that you will move, Holy Spirit, in all of our hearts to the conviction to believe Who you were is who you are and who you will be. That you are the God who is sovereign, who does take beauty from ashes, who brings life where there is nothing. I pray for individuals, I pray for marriages, I pray for families, Father, who have judged what's going to happen based on what they see and not based on who you are. May you be glorified through all of our brokenness and our sin. May you be glorified by the sins committed against us. May you orchestrate all things to your glory that I might have joy. In the blood of your Son, we worship. Amen.